Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of John Doe and the Cherub by L. Frank Baum. Volume 2. Chapter 3. John Doe Begins His Adventure. Now when John Doe left Madame Grogrand's shop and wandered up the street, he was reeking with the delightful odor of fresh gingerbread. Indeed, he was still so hot from the oven that I am positive you could not have held your hand against him for more than a second. The great elixir had brought him to life and given him a certain standing in the world. But during the first half hour of his existence, Chan Doe was very hot-headed. Also, he was very hot-footed, for he discovered that by walking fast, the contact with the fresh morning air drew the heat from his body and made him feel much more comfortable. One virtue lent by the great elixir was knowledge, and while John Doe felt that he possessed unlimited knowledge, having had an overdose of the elixir, he could not very well apply it to his surroundings, because he lacked experience with the world, which alone renders knowledge of any value to mankind. John Doe could speak all languages, modern and classic. He had a logical and clear mind, what is now called level-headed, you know, and this was coupled with good sense, fair judgment, and a tangled mass of wisdom that had been dumped into him in a haphazard fashion. But these rare qualities were as yet of no use to our man because he had acquired no experience. It was like putting tools into a scholar's hand and asking him to make a watch. John Doe might accomplish wonders in time if he did not grow stale and crumble, but just now he was the freshest individual that ever came out of a bake-room. It was still early morning and most folks were in bed. A prowling dog smelled the gingerbread and came trotting up with the intention of having a bite of it. But John Doe raised his candy cane and hit the dog a clip on the end of its nose that sent the animal in another direction with its tail between its legs. Then, whistling merrily, the gingerbread man walked on. He knew no tune whatever, but he could whistle, and so he managed to express an erratic mixture of notes that would have made Herr Wagner very proud. His flesh, or bread rather, was cooling off beautifully now. He was growing hard and crisp and felt much more substantial than at first. The baker had made him light, and the elixir had made him strong and vigorous. A great future lay before John Doe, if no accident happened to him. Presently someone said hello. John stopped short, for in front of him stood a bright-eyed boy with a piece of lit punk in one hand and a bunch of firecrackers in the other. It was Ned Robbins, who had been up since daybreak celebrating the glorious Fourth. "'You scared me at first, said the boy with a look of amazement that he tried to cover with a laugh. "'I beg your pardon, I'm sure,' returned John Doe politely. "'Been to a masquerade?' asked Ned, staring hard at the gingerbread man. "'No, indeed,' replied the other. "'I am not disguised, I assure you. You see me as I am.' "'Go on!' exclaimed Ned. But he could smell the gingerbread, and he began to grow frightened. So he touched the lit punk to the fuse of his biggest firecracker and dropped it on the ground at the feet of John Doe, and then turned and scampered up an alley as fast as he could go. The gingerbread man stood still and looked after Ned until the cracker suddenly exploded with a bang 
that caused John's candy teeth to chatter. His whole body was terribly jarred, and he nearly fell backwards in the shock of surprise. Then he also started to run. It was not in fear so much as ignorance of what might happen next that caused him to fly from the spot, but he ran with a speed that was simply wonderful, considering that his limbs were made of gingerbread. Truly that Arabian elixir was a marvellous thing. Bang! He had run plump into another group of boys, knocking two of them over before they could get out of the way. His silk hat was jabbed over his eyes, and the candy cane struck the wheel of a toy cannon and broke off a good two inches from its end. As he pulled off his hat, he heard a shout and saw the boys all scrambling for the broken end of the candy cane. One of them grabbed it and ran away, and the others followed in a mad chase and were soon out of sight. John Doe looked after them wonderingly. Then he drew himself up and pulled down his fine vest, sighed at discovering a slight crack in his shirt front, and walked slowly along the street again. His first experience of life was not altogether pleasant. "'Good gracious!' said a voice. He paused and saw a woman leaning over a gate beside him and glaring at him in mingled surprise and terror. She held a broom in her hand, for she had been sweeping the walk. John lifted his hat politely. "'Good morning, madame,' he said. "'Why, it's really alive,' gasped the woman. "'Is a live person so very unusual?' asked John curiously. "'Surely when he's made of cake it's unusual,' answered the woman, still staring as if she could not believe her eyes. "'Pardon me, I'm not cake, but I'm gingerbread,' he answered in a rather dignified way. "'It's all the same,' she answered. "'You haven't any right to be alive. There's no excuse for it.' "'But how can I help it?' he asked, somewhat puzzled by this remark. "'Oh, I don't suppose it's your fault. But it isn't right. You know. Who made you, anyway?' "'Jules Grogram, the baker,' he said, for he had read the name over the door. "'I always knew there was something wrong with those Frenchies,' she declared. "'Are you done?' Before he could reply, she had drawn a large straw from the broom and stuck it several inches into his side. "'Don't do that!' he cried indignantly as she drew out the bitter broom again. "'I was only trying you,' she remarked. "'You're done to a turn, and ought to make good eating while you're fresh.' John gazed at her in horror. "'Good eating, madame? Woman, you would murder me?' "'I can't say it would be exactly murder.' "'You're gingerbread,' she replied, looking at him hungrily. "'To destroy life is murder,' he said sternly. "'But to destroy gingerbread isn't,' she rejoined. "'And I can't see it's cannibalism to eat a man if he happens to be cake and freshly baked. "'And that frosting looks awful good. "'Come on inside while I go get a knife.' She opened the gate and tried to grab John Doe by the arm. But he gave a sudden backwards leap, and then sped down the street at a furious run, looking neither to the left or the right in his eager flight. Luckily he was not in the centre of town, but near the outskirts, and the houses were few and scattered. By and by he saw a deserted barn near the roadside. The door was half open and sagged on its hinges, so it could not be closed. John darted into the barn and hid behind some hay on the far side. He was thoroughly frightened and believed he had to avoid mingling with the people of the town if he would escape instant destruction. A knife, a knife, 
The word kept ringing in his ears, and filled him with horror. A knife could slice him into pieces easily. He imagined himself sliced and lying on a plate ready for a hungry folk to eat, and the picture made him groan aloud. All through the day he kept securely hidden behind the hay. Toward evening he decided to revisit the bakery. It was a difficult task, for he had passed through many streets and lanes without noticing where he was going, and it grew darker every minute. But at last, just as he was beginning to despair, he saw a dim light in the window and read over the door the sign that said, Jules Grogrand, Baker. He opened the door so softly that the little bell scarcely tinkled, but no one would have heard it had it rung loudly, for there was a confused murmur of fierce voices coming from the little room Madame usually occupied. John Doe skipped behind the counter where he could see into the room without being seen himself. Around the little table stood the Arab, Monsieur Jules, and Madame, and they were all staring angrily into each other's faces. "'But the flask!' cried the Arab. "'Where is my precious flask?' "'It is here,' said Madame, reaching behind the mirror and drawing forth something that glittered in the lamplight. "'But this is the silver flask, the cure for rheumatism,' exclaimed the Arab. "'Where is my golden flask containing the priceless elixir of life?' "'I must have made a mistake,' said Madame honestly. "'For my eyes are so queer I cannot tell gold from silver. "'Anyway, the contents of the other flask I emptied into a bowl of water "'and rubbed my limbs with it.' "'The Arab shouted a despairing cry in his native tongue "'and then glared wildly at the woman. "'Was it the brown bowl, Leontine?' "'asked Monsieur Jules, trembling in excitement. "'Yes,' she answered. "'Where is it? Where is it?' demanded the Arab in a hoarse voice. "'The precious liquor may yet be saved.' "'Too late, monsieur,' said the baker, shaking his head sadly. "'I used the contents of the bowl to mix the dough for my gingerbread man.' "'A gingerbread man? What do you mean?' asked Ali Dub. "'I baked a man out of gingerbread this morning,' said Monsieur Jules." and to my horror he came alive and spoke to me and walked out of the shop while he was still smoking hot. It is no wonder, said the Arab dolefully, for within him was enough of the great elixir to bring a dozen men to life and give them strength and energy for many years. Ah, monsieur and madame, think what your stupidity has cost the world. I do not comprehend, said madame firmly how the world has ever yet been benefited by the great elixir, which you and your selfish countrymen have kept for centuries, corked up in a golden flask. Bismillah! shouted the Arab, striking himself fiercely across the forehead with his clenched fist. You cannot understand, you stupid one. That was mine, mine, this wonderful water of life. I planned to use it on myself so that I might live forever, drop by drop. I'm sorry, said Monsieur, but it is your own fault. You forced my wife to care for the flask, and you would not let her tell me about it. So, through your own stupidity, I used it in the gingerbread man. Ah, said Ali, an eager gleam in his eyes. Where, then, is that gingerbread man? If I can find him, eat him, a bit at a time, I shall get the benefit of the great elixir after all. 
It would not be so powerful, perhaps, as in its natural state, but it would enable me to live for many, many years. John Doe heard the speech with a thrill of horror. Also, he now began to understand how he happened to be alive. I do not know where the gingerbread man is, said Monsieur. He walked out of my shop while he was still quite hot. But he can still be found, said the Arab. It is impossible for a gingerbread man who is alive to escape notice. Come, let us search for him at once. I must find him and eat him. He fairly dragged Monsieur and Madame from the room in his desperation, and John Doe crouched out of sight behind the counter until he heard them pass through the door and their footsteps died away up the street. The talk he had overheard made the gingerbread man very sad indeed. The bakery was no safe home for him after all. Evidently it was the Arab's intention to find him and insist upon eating him, and John Doe did not want to be eaten at all. Therefore his enemies must not find him. They were no safer to meet with than the awful woman who wanted to slice him up into pieces. And he was learning by degrees that all men were dangerous enemies to him, although he had himself the form of a man. He left the bakery and stole out into the street once more, walking now in the opposite direction that had been taken by the Arab and the Grograms. As he hurried along the street, he met with few people on the streets, and these, in the dark, paid little attention to the little gingerbread man. So gradually his spirits rose and his confidence in his future returned. By and by he heard a strange popping and hissing coming from the direction of the square in the center of town, and then he saw red and green lights illuminating the houses and fiery comets go sailing into the sky to break into dozens of beautiful colored stars. The people were having their Fourth of July fireworks, and John Doe became curious to witness the display from nearby. So forgetting his fears, he ran through the streets until he came to a big crowd of people who were too busy watching the fireworks to notice a gingerbread man stood beside them. John Doe pressed forward until he was quite in the front row, and just behind the men who were firing the rockets. For a time he watched the rush of the colored fires with much pleasure and thoroughly enjoyed the sputtering of a big wheel that refused to go round, merely sending out weak and listless spurts of green and red sparks, as is the manner of such wheels. But now the event of the evening was to occur. Two men brought out an enormous rocket, fully fifteen feet tall and filled with a tremendous charge of powder. This they leaned against a wooden trough that stood upright, but the rocket was too tall to stay in place and swayed from side to side awkwardly. "'Here, hold that stick!' cried one of the men, and John Doe stepped forward and grasped the stick of the big rocket firmly, not knowing that there was any danger in doing so. Then the man ran to get a piece of rope to tie the rocket in place, but the other man, being excited and thinking the rocket was ready to fire, touched off the fuse without noticing that John Doe was clinging fast to the stick. There was a sudden shriek, a rush of fire, and then slowly at first, but with ever-increasing speed, the huge rocket mounted far into the sky, carrying with it the form of the gingerbread man. The rocket continued to send out fiery sparks of burning powder as it plunged higher and higher into the black vault of the heavens. But few of these came into contact with John Doe, who clung to the far side of the stick, 
and so escaped being seriously damaged. Also, the rocket curved and presently sped miles away over land and sea, impelled by the terrible force of the powder it contained. John fully expected that it would burst presently and blow him to bits amid a cloud of colored stars, but the giant rocket was not made in the same way as the other and smaller ones that had been fired, the intention being merely to make it go as high and as far as possible. So it finally burnt itself out, but so great was the speed that it attained that it continued to fly for many minutes after the last spark had died away. Then the rocket began to take a downward course, but it was so high up, by that time the stick and the empty shell flew onward hour after hour, until a new day began to break. The huge stick, with John Doe still holding fast to its end, fell lightly upon an island, washed on all sides by the waves of a mighty sea. John fell on a soft bush, and then bounded to the ground, where for a time he lay quite still and tried to recover his thoughts. He had not done much thinking, it seems, while he was in the air. The rush of wind past his ears had dazed him, and he only realized he must cling fast to the stick and await what might happen. Indeed, that was the only thing to be done in such an emergency. The shock of the fall had for a moment dazed the gingerbread man, and as he lay upon the ground, he heard a voice cry out, "'Get off me, will you? Get off me, I say!' Chapter 5. Chick the Cherub John rolled over and sat up, and then another person, a little man with a large head, also sat up and faced him. "'What do you mean by it?' asked the little man, glaring upon John Doe angrily. "'Can't you see where you're falling?' "'No, I did not,' answered John. It was growing lighter every minute, and the grey mists of morning were fading away before the rising sun. John looked around him and saw that he was upon a broad sandy beach, where waves of the great sea lapped peacefully. Behind was a green meadow, and then mountains that rose high into the air. "'How did you happen to be where I fell?' he asked, turning to the little man again. "'I always sleep on the sands,' replied the other, wagging his head solemnly. "'It's my fad. Fresh air, you know. I'm called the Fresh Air Fiend by some. I suppose you're a new inhabitant. You seem rather queer.' "'I'm made of gingerbread,' said John. "'Well, that certainly is unusual, so I've no doubt you'll be warmly welcome to our island,' replied the man. "'But where am I?' asked John, looking around again with a puzzled expression. "'This is the Isle of Freaks,' answered the other, "'and it is inhabited by unusual people. I'm one, and you're another.' He made such a droll face as he said this that the gingerbread man could not resist smiling but it startled him to hear another laugh at his back, a sound merry and sweet, such as a bird trill. He swung around quickly and saw a child standing upon the sands, where the rays of the sun fell brightly upon its little form, and then the glass eyes of the gingerbread man grew big and stood out from his cake face in a way that fully expressed his astonishment. "'It's a vision!' he exclaimed. "'No, it's the cherub, whom we call Chick,' answered the big-headed man carelessly. The child had fair hair falling in fleecy waves to its shoulders, but more or less tangled and neglected. It had delicate features, rosy cheeks, 
and round blue eyes. When these eyes were grave, which was seldom, there were questions in them. When they smiled, which was often, sunbeams rippled over their blue surfaces. For clothing, the child wore garments of pure white, which reached from the neck to the ankles, and had wide flowing sleeves and legs, like those of a youngster's pajamas. The little one's head and feet were bare, but the pink soles were protected by sandals, fastened with straps across the toes and ankles. "'Good morning,' said John, again smiling and hoping that he had not stared too rudely. "'It gives me a great pleasure to meet you.' "'My name is Chick,' replied the child, laughing in sweet trills, while the blue eyes regarded the gingerbread man with evident wonder. "'That is a funny name.' "'Yes, it is funny,' the child agreed with a friendly nod. "'Chick means chicken, you know.' "'And I'm not a chicken.' "'Of course not,' replied John. "'A chicken is covered with feathers, and you are certainly not.' At this Chick laughed merrily and said, as if it were the simplest thing in the world, "'I'm an incubator baby, you know.' "'Dear me, I hadn't the least idea of it,' John answered gravely. "'May I ask what an incubator baby is?' The child squatted down in the sand and hugged his chubby knees and uttered peal after peal of joyous laughter. How funny you don't know what an incubator baby is. Really, you must be fresh bait. I am, said John, feeling rather ashamed to acknowledge the fact, but resolving to be truthful. Then, of course, you are very ignorant, remarked the fresh-air fiend, rubbing his big head complacently. Oh, as for that, said John, I acquired in the course of manufacture a vast deal of ancient learning, which I got from an Arabian elixir with which the baker mixed me. I am well posted in all events down to the last century, but I cannot recall any knowledge of an incubator baby. No, they're a recent invention, declared the big-headed man, patting tenderly the child's golden curls. Were you by any chance the Pan-American Exposition or the Louisiana Purchase Exposition? No, answered John. My knowledge was corked up about then. Well, continued the man, there were a good many incubator babies at those expositions, and lots of people saw them, but Chick is the first and only original incubator baby, and so Chick probably belongs in the island of Freaks. Chick jumped up and made a stiff bow, and with eyes sparkling with mischief exclaimed, I'm six years old, and quite strong and well. Tut, tut, chick, remonstrated the big-headed man. It was more than two years ago you were taught to make that speech. You can't always be six years old, you know. The little sprite enjoyed the joke so much that John was forced to laugh in sympathy, but just then a thought struck him, and he asked a little nervously, Do you like gingerbread? I don't know, replied chick. Are you gingerbread? "'I am,' said John bravely. "'Then I like gingerbread,' the child declared, "'for you smell sweet and look kind and gentle.' John didn't know whether to accept this as a compliment or not. He was sorry to learn that he smelled sweet, although to be called kind and gentle was grateful praise. "'Some folks,' he remarked timidly, "'have an idea that they like to eat gingerbread.' "'I couldn't eat you,' the child said seriously. "'because 
being the incubator baby, I have to be on a very careful special diet. You might not agree with me. I'm sure I couldn't agree with anyone who ate me, John declared. For although as yet I have no experience of that sort, it seems to me a very undesirable fate. Very true, remarked the big-headed man. Let's be friends, exclaimed Chick, coming close to John and taking his soft brown hand in a firm clasp. I'll take care of you. John looked down at the merry little elf in positive wonder. We'll be friends, all right, but instead of you taking care of me, Chick, I will take care of you. Oh, there you are entirely wrong, broke in the big-headed man. Chick's a privileged character in the Island of Freaks, and the only one of us who dares defy our awful kinglet. And in case of danger... Danger? cried John with a start. Is there danger here, too? Chick's laughter rang out at the foolish question, but the man replied seriously. There is danger everywhere to those who are unusual, and especially in the Isle of Freaks, where we are at the mercy of a horrid kinglet. But come, we must go and report your arrival to that same graceless ruler, or we shall all be punished. Very well, said John meekly. But as he took Chick's hand and turned to depart, the fresh-air fiend uttered an exclamation of annoyance and said, Here's bad luck already! The failings are coming this way. As he spoke, a noise of shouting and chattering reached their ears, and presently several people came around a corner of rock and stood before John and his newly found friends. It's the brotherhood of failings, whispered the big-headed man. Look out for them, or they'll do you mischief. Don't worry, I'll take care of you, said Chick, pressing the dough hand. John stared at the newcomers and they returned the compliment by staring at him. A queerer lot of folk could seldom have been seen together. "'This is the blunderer,' said the fresh-air fiend, indicating a short, fat man who was clothed in glittering armour and bore a lance over his shoulder. The blunderer acknowledged the introduction by bowing. "'And the one here is the thoughtless one,' continued the man, pointing to a tall, lean man who was clothed in chamois leather, and carried a wide-mouthed blunderbuss under his arm. "'Look out for the gun,' said Chick. "'He never knows whether or not it's loaded.' "'And here is the disagreeable, and the unlucky, and the sorrowful, and the ugly, and the awkward,' continued the big-headed man, pointing to each, failing in turn. "'Their peculiarities you will have no trouble to discover. Indeed, on all the Isle of Freaks, there is no one more unpleasant to meet with than this same lot of failings. At this the brothers all bowed, saying at the same time, We are proud of ourselves. At that instant the awkward one tripped over his own shoes and fell against the blunderer, who tumbled headlong and thrust his slim lance straight through the body of John Doe. Oh! cried Chick, greatly horrified. I told you so, growled the fresh-air fiend pulling out the lance hastily. "'Tell me, John Doe, are you dead or are you just dying?' "'Neither one,' said John, ruefully pushing together the hole that the lance had made. "'But that doesn't add to my personal appearance to be prodded in that fashion. "'I'm made of gingerbread,' he explained, turning to the man in armour. "'I beg your pardon. I really beg your pardon,' 
said the blunderer, greatly distressed at what he had just done. I'd no intention of hurting you. He means well, said the incubator baby. But that doesn't help much. He won't last long in this island, grunted the bad-tempered one, referring to John Doe. Being made of gingerbread, he can't be expected to last, remarked the disagreeable one, smiling in a way that made John shudder. He shall have my protection, said the blunderer. It's the least I could do to make amends. Here, put on this armour. He hastily began stripping off the plates of metal and placed the steel helmet over the head of the gingerbread man. No, no, exclaimed John. I do not want to wear all this hardware. But you must, cried the blunderer. It's the only way you can escape accident in this awful island. It's true enough, agreed the big-headed man. I advise you to wear the armour, my gingerbread friend. So John submitted to being dressed in the armour, and no sooner had the plates been strapped upon him than the wisdom of the act was apparent, for there came a rush and whirl of sound, and suddenly a great monster swept over the sands at the very spot where they stood. It sent the Brotherhood of Failings sprawling in every direction, while the incubator baby flew to the water's edge, and John Doe's armor-clad body was knocked down and pressed into the soft sand until it was level with the surface. But presently Chick came back and made the others dig him out and set him upon his feet again, and then it was seen that no one had been seriously injured. "'What was that?' asked John, gazing in amazement at the place where the monster had disappeared in the distance. "'It's the one-wheeled automobile,' answered the sorrowful one. "'And unless it gets smashed mighty soon, "'the Isle of Freaks will be an Isle of Cripples. "'I don't understand why they license the thing.' "'Why to make room for new arrivals, of course,' "'declared the disagreeable one. "'But it was lucky for the pudding man here "'that he happened to be dressed in steel.' "'I am not pudding, if you please,' said John indignantly. I beg you to remember, I am gingerbread. It's all the same to me, remarked the thoughtless one. Your cake is dough, anyway. Let's return to the castle, said the ugly one. Our kinglet should be introduced to his new subject. So they all started off across the green, Chick leading the gingerbread man, until they came to a path leading upward through the rocks, along which they began to ascend. John had much difficulty in keeping out of the way of the awkward, who tripped and stumbled constantly, while the blunder insisted upon taking the wrong path, and the bad-tempered one stopped twice to fight with the disagreeable one and the thoughtless one. At last, however, they reached the top, which proved to be a broad plain of rock, upon which stood a great castle with many tall spires and grim towers with glittering minarets. While they paused for John Doe to admire the view, and so that they all might catch their breath, a sharp voice said near them, "'You're late, you lot of failings, and the king that will scold you!' John looked around and saw perched upon a point of rock beside the path a most curious-looking creature. "'Don't stare!' it said with a laugh. "'I don't, and I've got a dozen eyes to your one! Let me introduce myself!' I'm the prize potato from the Centerville Fair. Indeed, John now noticed a big blue ribbon twinned around the middle of the potato, and on the ribbon was printed in gold letters, First Prize. Someday you'll sprout, said the disagreeable one, and then you won't have so many eyes. 
The prize potato winked its numerous eyes, one after another, in a droll fashion, and answered, Someday you'll meet with an accident, my dear failing, but when you're planted in the ground, you're not going to sprout at all. That's where I'm your superior, for I'm perpetual. Every one of me eyes is good for a half peck of potatoes. Unless you're boiled with your jacket on, remarked the ugly one with a sour smile. Come, come, let us get on with this, interrupted the little man with the big head. Our kinglet doubtless awaits us. When they'd gone a few steps farther, the incubator baby paused to say, Someone is following us, and it's a stranger. This remark caused John to look around, and immediately he stopped short, with an expression of horror upon his frosted face. For there, turning the corner of the rocky path, was Al-Dub, the Arab, The fellow at once uttered a cry of joy and triumph, and drawing his gleaming knife, he rushed upon John Doe with great eagerness. The gingerbread man had given up all hope of escape, and stood trembling, awaiting his foe, when Chick suddenly grasped the blunderer's lance and tripped the Arab so neatly with it that Ali Dub fell his full length upon the path and broke his knife blade into a dozen pieces. But he squirmed forward and was about to bite into John's leg, when the big-headed man came to the rescue and threw a handful of pebbles into the Arab's open mouth, and so prevented him from doing the gingerbread man any damage. "'He seems dangerous,' remarked the blunderer. "'Let's tie him up before he hurts somebody.' So while the Arab was coughing pebbles out of his mouth, the Brotherhood of Failings bound his hands and feet with strong cords so he could not move. "'He's mine!' shouted the Arab as soon as he could speak. He belongs to me. I claim him for my own. There's no harm in that, replied the fresh air fiend. But one of the laws of this island is that no person shall be injured by anyone except the kinglet, and everyone here knows they must obey the laws. So unless you promise not to carve or to eat this man of gingerbread, who is now the subject of our kinglet, we must lock you up in prison. I'll eat him as soon as I have a chance. I have a right to do so, cried the Arab. You're a bad man, said Chick, stamping one small foot indignantly. I am not. I'm a good man, and I paid Jules Grogrand fifty cents for this gingerbread imitation of a man, who is mixed with my own magic elixir. Also, I paid a witch nine dollars to transport me to wherever the gingerbread man might be, which is right here that I might take possession of my own property. So I've got him, and he's paid for, and he's mine, and I claim the right to eat him whenever I please. You'll do no such thing, declared Chick. Why, John Doe is alive, and no one has a right to make him dead, and then eat him, even if he is paid for. Don't worry, my cherub, said the big-headed man soothingly. We'll go at once and lock this Arab in a strong room of the castle, so he can't possibly escape. Chick smiled sweetly at this promise, but the Arab scowled and said grimly, Never mind! My time will come some day! I shall surely eat that gingerbread man, in spite of this cherub, and all the rest of you! This defiance made the Brotherhood of Failings, and the big-headed man so angry that they at once dragged Ali Dub away to the castle, and John Doe and Chick followed after, hand in hand, feeling quite safe. Presently they came to a great archway that led into the courtyard of the castle. 
Having passed through this arch, the gingerbread man saw groups of the most astonishing people, who were busying themselves over extraordinary tasks, such as building machines, boiling strange-smelling chemicals in queer pots, drawing curious designs, and like occupations. A sudden crash announced that the blunderer had fallen into the middle of a delicate machine and smashed it to bits. Before they could pull him out, the unlucky one ran against the whirling arms of a windmill and was tossed halfway across the courtyard, while the awkward one upset a boiling kettle and set everyone to coughing who inhaled the odor of the compound that was spilled upon the ground. To John's surprise, no one seemed much worried over these accidents. Even the victims joined in Chick's merry laughter, and those of the failings who had escaped disaster calmly proceeded to lock up the Arab in a cell that had a strong iron grating for a door and fastened with a huge padlock. Afterwards, they all entered through a second arch into the great hall of the castle. This was a long, wide room with a tiled floor and walls that were covered with many trophies, such as armor, spears, battle-axes, and swords of ancient design. At the far end of the room was a raised platform upon which stood a gorgeous throne. Back of the throne was an electric sign, flashing one letter at a time and reading, What is home without a kinglet? Over the throne was suspended an enormous crown which sparkled with gems, big enough for a giant. Beside the throne a very fat man sat in a chair so low that his knees nearly touched his chin. He wore a short red coat, a wide white vest, and blue knee breeches, and all were embroidered in gold. The fat man's eyes were closed and he seemed asleep. Within the throne sat the kinglet, propped upon purple cushions, so that he would fit it better. For the kinglet was a small boy with a long freckled face, blue eyes, a pug nose, and black hair banged across his forehead and hanging in lank, straight locks far down over his shoulders. He wore an ermine cloak lined with purple and bore in his hand a scepter with a jeweled ball at one end, while beyond the ball projected a small golden knob. The kinglet's slim legs were crossed under him like those of a Turk, and he seemed very frail and delicate. However, when the failings, the fresh air fiend and Chick and John Doe entered, the kinglet's brow was puckered into a frown, and his blue eyes fairly flashed fire. Ah, Zooks! he cried as they all knelt before the throne. Why have you dared to wait until this hour to pay me your devoirs? Then he leaned down and prodded the fat man with the knob of his scepter, so that the sleeper started and opened his eyes. Is that right, Nebby? Is devoir a kingly word? he demanded. Absolutely kingly, your majesty, said the fat man, yawning. It was used by King Arthur and Richard Coeur d'Alene. Very well, said the kinglet proudly. Then he turned again to the kneeling group before him. Why don't you answer me? he exclaimed. Why are you so late in paying me your boudoirs? Devoirs, your majesty, devoirs, said the fat man hastily. I said devoirs, returned the kinglet, turning upon him in anger. We are late because we did not get here sooner, said the awkward one, and we could not get here sooner because we were late. So, shrieked his majesty with blazing eyes, now by my halidom, he paused suddenly and turned to the fat man, 
prodding him so fiercely that he jumped several feet in the air. Is halidom the right word, Nebby? Sure, said the fat man, nodding emphatically. What does it mean? the kinglet asked. What does halidom mean? Yes. Why, halidom is a halidom, said the fat man thoughtfully. It belongs to kings. But what is it? persisted the kinglet impatiently. It's a, a, a sort of royal prerogative. It is usually painted red, returned the fat man, and immediately resumed his seat and closed his eyes again. The kinglet sighed and turned anew to the failings. Let me see, he remarked. Where was I? You were by your halidom, your majesty, suggested the blunderer. Oh, yes. Again the long, freckled face took on a frown. By my halidom, churl! He stopped to glance at the fat man. Churl is right, mumbled Nebby without opening his eyes. By my halidom, churl, you shall either swallow my scepter or die the death. Or death? asked the blunderer, trembling. The one that makes people dead, replied the kinglet sternly. Choose then, Varlet. Varlet is good, said Nebby quickly to avoid a thrust. Whether to swallow my scepter or die the death. The blunderer glanced at the scepter, the jewelled ball of which was nearly as large as his head. I guess I'll swallow the scepter, he said. Good, cried the king, and he held it toward him. But not now, added the blunderer hastily. I'll take my time about it. You didn't say when, you know. The king that turned red with rage. Now! If I should swallow it now, continued the blunderer calmly, you would cease to be a kinglet, for a kinglet without a scepter is nothing but a flippity jig. What? shrieked his majesty, jabbing the fat man furiously. That's right, declared Nebby, groaning and rubbing his fat side dolefully. A kinglet without a scepter is a flippity jig. Well, said his majesty after considering the matter, I forbid you, Sir Blunder, to swallow my scepter until I give you leave then. Then his eyes fell upon John Doe and Chick, who were standing at one side of the failings, and immediately the little kinglet looked surprised, and then curious, and then annoyed. But perhaps the annoyed look was because Chick laughed in the royal face in a way that was certainly, well, disrespectful. And even John Doe didn't look at all humble. Here, Chick, you behave yourself, commanded the kinglet. I won't, said Chick, pouting two pretty lips. Well, this kingdom existed at one time without an incubator baby, and I believe we could spare you now. I'll have your saucy head cut off, declared the kinglet. I dare you, said Chick, making a face. There's a nice child, I must say, retorted the kinglet, scowling. But what can you expect of a baby that has no parents and no proper upbringing? Bah, I'm ashamed of you, Chick. Don't you dare say anything against my incubator. I guess I've had as good an upbringing as you have, you disagreeable kinglet you. His Majesty was at first about to retort with equal anger, but he suddenly changed his mind and turned to John Doe. Who are you, stranger? he demanded. And why are you wearing the blunderer's armour? So much disrespect had been shown this kinglet by his subjects that John was about to reply lightly to these questions. But to his surprise, Chick grasped his hand and whispered to him to make a low bow. 
and to be very careful what he said. So the gingerbread man stepped forward and addressed his majesty with great ceremony. Oh, most puissant and serene kinglet, I am called John Doe because I have made a gingerbread, and I came to your isle because I could not help it. The kinglet looked upon the stranger with a kindly expression. Puissant and serene? Evidently, John Doe, you are a person of wit and intelligence. Such are most welcome to the Isle of Freaks. Kneel thou at my feet. John knelt as commanded, and the kinglet at once dealt him a sharp blow upon the blunderer's helmet with the heavy end of the royal scepter. It dented in the steel plate, and would have crushed the gingerbread man's head had it not been so well protected by the helmet. I dub you knight of freaks, said his majesty. Rise, Sir John Doe, villain no longer, but noble and favoured among my subjects. John stood up and bowed, although he was slightly dazed by the force of the blow. Long live the gentle kinglet of freaks, he managed to say. And Chick clapped two chubby hands with glee and whispered, "'Well done, my friend.' "'You please me, Sir John,' remarked the little kinglet, swelling out his chest complacently. "'I wish all the people of Freaks were so polite and discerning.' Then he turned around and inquired, "'Where's Sir Austin Alfred, the poet laureate?' Immediately a drapery parted, and a man with a pale thin face and long black hair entered, and saluted his majesty with profound respect. The poet had a bandage over one eye, and hobbled as if lame in one leg. He was clothed all in black, and his long frock coat had grease spots down the front of it. "'Have you made me a sonnet today?' demanded the little kinglet. "'Yes, I have, my royal master,' answered the poet, and pompously unrolling a scroll, he read in a loud voice these lines. "'There is a wise kinglet of Frakes.' Whose wit is so great that it lags? His brain hath not big, but who cares a fig, while wisdom from him fairly reeks? Now that's not bad, said his majesty reflectively. But can't you make it a little bit stronger, Sir Poet? I'll try, replied Austed Alfred. And after penciling some words on his tablet, he read as follows. The goddess of wisdom felt sad and when asked why she whimpered so bad, said, See, there's one, it's true, who knows more than I do, and the kinglet of freaks is the lad. Now that, said his majesty, strikes me as being real poetry. How does it strike you, Soto? It's fairly good, replied the gingerbread man, but it hardly does you justice. The poet doesn't dare do his majesty justice, said the disagreeable failing. If he did, that should be no poet. There's something in that too, said the kinglet. But now, Sir Austed, write me a sonnet on my new subject, Sir John Doe. The poet sighed and began writing on his tablets, and presently he read this. The kinglet of freaks at his side has a knight made of stale gingerbread. We could eat him, but yet the dyspepsia we get would soon make us wish we were dead. That is rank libel, said John indignantly. And if your majesty will loan me your scepter, I'll make an end of this poet in seven seconds by the clock. You have my permission to make mincemeat of him, 
replied the king cheerfully. Mercy, mercy, my lord, screamed the poet, falling upon his knees before John, and hastily wiping the verse off his tablets. Give me one more chance, I beg of you. Very well, said the gingerbread knight. But if it's no better than the last, you shall be discharged. Is it not so, your majesty? Quite so, laughed the kinglet. The poet nervously scribbled another set of lines, which he read in a voice that trembled with fear. The gingerbread man is so sweet. To eat him would be a rare treat. He's crisp and well-spiced, and you'd find, were he sliced, that the eggs in him cannot be beat. That's better. Not sure about the eggs, as I did not pay much attention when I was mixed. However, this sincere tribute to my excellence will save you from my displeasure, and you may go free. The poet did not wait an instant, but ran from the hall as fast as his legs would carry him. The kinglet now dismissed the failings, who left the royal presence quarreling and threatening one another, and making so much noise and uproar that the gingerbread man was glad to see them go. "'Aren't they nice?' asked the kinglet, looking after them. "'I'd like to drown them all in the castle moat like kittens. "'But every king, they say, has his failings. "'So I suppose I must keep mine,' he sighed and continued. "'But what did the poet's sonnet say about your being crisp and well-spiced, "'and rather good eating were you sliced?' "'Don't pay any attention to that, your majesty,' said John hastily. "'But why not?' persisted the kinglet. I declare, Sir John, there's something about you that makes me hungry whenever I look at you. I don't remember having eaten any gingerbread since I was a boy. I mean, since I came to rule over the Isle of Freaks. Ho oh, there, my guards, fetch me a knife. John was now trembling with terror. But Chick said to the kinglet, Your Majesty forgets you are to have pancakes and maple syrup for tea. What's the use of spoiling your appetite? when you know the gingerbread man will keep good for weeks. Are you sure? asked the king anxiously. Are you sure he'll keep? He won't get stale. Of course not, answered the child. He's the kind of gingerbread that always keeps good. And you mustn't forget he'll be a credit to the Isle of Freaks, for whoever saw a live gingerbread man before? Nobody, declared the kinglet positively. You're right, my cherub. I'll save the gingerbread man for another meal. In the meantime, I can show him off for my people. We pride ourselves, Sir John, on having a greater variety of queer personages than any other kingdom in existence. Then you ought to be careful of them and not permit them to be eaten, said John, still anxious. But the kinglet did not seem to hear him. Pancakes and maple syrup! muttered his majesty longingly. Tell me, Chick, I wish tea were ready now. So do I, said Chick, laughing, for John Doe was safe from being eaten just then, whatever might be his future fate, and the child had saved him by the mention of cakes and syrup. But now a sudden hubbub was heard at the door, and in rushed a number of royal guards, wheeling a big platform on which was seated a woman so exceedingly fat that she appeared to be much wider than she was long. "'Here, what's the trouble with Bibi Celeste?' asked the kinglet, frowning. "'She has lost two ounces, Your Majesty,' puffed one of the guards, wiping perspiration from his forehead. Two ounces? 
shouted the kinglet. Now by the toga of Samson. By the way, Nebby, did Samson wear a toga? He punched the fat man so severely that Nebby gave a roar of pain before he answered. He wore several, your majesty. Then by the several togas of Samson, Bibi Celeste, how dare you come before me two ounces shy? I did not come. I was brought, said the fat woman in a wheezy voice. She was weighed in the balance and found wanting, said the guardsman. What was she wanting? asked the kinglet. Two ounces, your majesty. The ruler rubbed his pug nose with one finger in a reflective manner. Bibi, he said, you've been exercising again, haven't you? You're trying to reduce. The woman began to cry. It's not my fault, your royal giblet. Kinglet woman? said the fat man without opening his eyes. Your royal kinglet, I didn't mean to lose a single flutter of flesh, but my dog Duo got to quarrelling with himself, and I got exercised in my mind. Oh, the loss is in your mind, is it? interrupted the king. I wouldn't mind the loss if I had not forbidden you to exercise at all, even in your mind. I could not help it, your fudgesty. Majesty woman, said the fat man sleepily. My dog duo got to quarrelling. Bring us the dog, varlets, churls, and vassals, screeched the kinglet in his shrill voice. The guards stumbled over each other to obey, and presently they returned, leading such a curious animal that John Doe stared at it in amazement. It was a dog, without doubt, or rather it was a dog's body, with a head and two legs at either end of it, so that when one end walked forward, the other had to walk backwards, and that made the back end growl angrily. But the same end was not always the back end of the dog, for first one head and then the other would prove strongest, and drag the curious animal forward. This double-headed dog, which was named Duo, was brought in, both heads, snarling and barking in a very noisy manner. But however much enraged they were, they could never get together to do one another mischief. Be silent, yelled the kinglet, annoyed at the clamour, but the dog's heads paid no attention to the command. Very well, said his majesty. I'll put a stop to your noise for good and all. Here, you guards, fetch me the royal executioner. The fat lady began crying anew at this, and presently the door opened, and a young girl entered the hall. She was clothed in simple robes of pure white, over which her loose brown hair flowed in a soft cloud. Her eyes were large and dark, and very gentle in expression, and her cheeks were fair as a lily. In one hand the maid bore a long sword, the naked blade of which shone brightly in the light. In the other hand was a sharpening stone, and as she bowed before the kinglet, she rubbed the stone gently against the keen edge of the blade. Although the dog's heads were still quarrelling, and Bibi Celeste still weeping, it was upon John Doe that the royal executioner first turned her eyes. I hope it isn't this one, your majesty, she said in a voice of disappointment, for he won't bleed at all, being made of cake. I beg your pardon, exclaimed John hastily. I am not cake, I am gingerbread. It's just the same, she answered, sighing. You wouldn't bleed if I cut you into bits. Why are you so bloodthirsty? asked John, looking reproachfully into the girl's gentle eyes. Because I'm the royal executioner, I suppose, 
I've held the office ever since my father was destroyed by an earthquake, but I've never yet executed a single person. The kinglet calls me in about a dozen times a day, but something always happens to rob me of one of my victims. I've worn out three sword blades sharpening them, but I've never carved anything yet. Be of good cheer, said his majesty, for now you shall see blood flow like water. This time I am fully resolved to be terrible. Cut me the snarling cur into two parts. What, the dog? asked the girl surprised, and Bibi began to scream loudly, and the fat man awoke. He shook his head, and Chick patted both heads of the animal tenderly, and a guardsman cried out, Oh no, your majesty! And why not? inquired the kinglet. Why, this is the most valuable creature in all your dominions, said the guard. Do you desire to rob yourself of such a treasure, your majesty? The kinglet hesitated and then jabbed the fat man with his scepter. Is this so, Nebby? he asked. It is so, my lord, answered the fat man. If you want to butcher anything, cut up a few of the royal guards, or mince the failings, or carve chick the cherub. But the dog duo is one of the most remarkable features of your kingdom, and should be preserved at all hazards. Why, he's worth more than baby Celeste. That reminds me, said the kinglet. Take baby away, guards. Stuff her with mashed potatoes and pâté de foie gras. If she doesn't regain those two ounces in three days, she'll disgrace my kingdom, and I'll turn her over to the royal executioner. So the guards trundled away the platform on which the fat woman sat, and the dog duo followed, first one head leading and then the other. And now his majesty threw off his ermine robes and lay down the scepter and scrambled out of the throne. The royal audience is ended for today, and now I'll go and see if those cakes and maple syrup are ready for tea. And see here, you incubator baby, look after John Doe, and mind that nobody eats him. If there's one bite gone, when I see him again, I'll turn you over to the royal executioner, and then there won't be any incubator baby. Then his majesty walked away, chuckling to himself in a very disagreeable manner. At once the fat Nebby rolled out of his low seat and stood up, yawning and stretching out his arms. Oh, Kinglet is a hard master, he said with a sigh. And I really wish someone would get up a revolution and dethrone him. He's been punching my ribs all day long. I'll be black and blue by tomorrow morning. He's cruel, said Chick, patting the fat man's hand as if to comfort him. And yet he's too tender-hearted to suit me, complained the lovely executioner. If I could only shed a single drop of blood, I'd feel I'm of some use to the world. How dreadful! cried John with a shudder. Oh, not at all, said the girl. For what's the object of being an executioner if one can't execute? And she tugged the sword under her arm and took out her handkerchief and went away weeping sorrowfully. Well, didn't I take care of you all right? laughed the incubator baby, leading John Doe from the throne room and up a broad flight of marble steps. Indeed you did, he answered gratefully. Really, my dear chick, I believe that dreadful kinglet would have eaten me but for you. Of course he would have, said the cherub, nodding gaily. 
And won't he be wild when he finds out there are no pancakes and maple syrup for tea? Chum stopped short. There are not? Oh, Cheek. I'm afraid he'll punish you for your deceiving him. I don't mind, declared the child. No one shall eat a friend of mine that I've given my promise to take care of. So come along, John Doe, and don't worry. I've got a lovely room on the top floor of this castle, and I'll share it with you. <laughs>